Welcome to the virtual Cato Institute. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm a vice president and director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. We're here to discuss COVID and the Constitution. In 1905, the Supreme Court rendered two landmark decisions on the scope of individual liberty, Jacobson versus Massachusetts and Lochner versus New York. Jacobson's broad deference to public health authority lived side by side with Lochner's broader conception of economic liberty. While the restrictive precedent, Jacobson, now governs all pandemic response, Lochner is no longer available as a check, having been thrown in the dustbin of legal history. Judges follow a variant of Jacobson that's far removed from the actual decision to resolve disputes over religious freedom, abortion, gun rights, voting, and more. Over the course of a century, four prominent justices established the irrepressible myth of Jacobson versus Massachusetts. And in a time when state police power has imposed unprecedented limits on individuals' ability to provide for themselves, Lochner should be brought out of lockdown. The rationales for Lochner's subsequent disavowal by the court are largely inapplicable to the COVID-19 situation. Shutdown orders and the like have an economic effect, but are not economic policy. They may be one of the broadest assertions of sovereign authority in peacetime, but we lack the constitutional language to deal with the potential danger to liberty implicated by such measures. Today, we have Josh Blackman and Eugene Kontorovich discuss their recent work in this area with commentary by Wendy Mariner. I will now introduce all of them and then turn it over to the panelists. Josh Blackman is a professor at the South Texas College of Law, Houston, and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. He has authored three books, the latest of which was a top five bestseller on Amazon. He's also written more than five dozen law review articles, three of which he co-authored with me. Uh, in addition to constitutional law, he works at the intersection of law and technology, having founded Fantasy SCOTUS and being an active blogger at the Volok Conspiracy. Then we'll have Eugene Kontorovich, who's a professor at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School, where he directs the Center for the Middle East and International Law. Eugene has published more than 30 scholarly articles and book chapters in leading law reviews and peer-reviewed journals. He graduated from the University of Chicago Law School the year before I did and won the Federalist Society's Bader Award, given annually to a young scholar for outstanding scholarship and teaching. And I guess I should add that Josh also won that award, although it's been renamed after Joseph's story. And commenting on their work will be Wendy Mariner, who is Professor Emerita in Health Law, Ethics, and Human Rights at Boston University School of Public Health. I believe she just took emerita status uh, this year, so congratulations on that. Um, Professor Mariner's research focuses on laws governing health risks, including social and personal responsibility for risk creation, voting in elections as a social determinant of health, health insurance systems, implementation of the Affordable Care Act, ERISA, health information privacy, and population health policy. And she has co-authored three editions of the law school textbook, Public Health Law, and published more than 100 scholarly articles. So I'll turn it over to Josh and I'll remind everyone in the audience to uh, note your questions, whatever platform you're on, whether on our website uh, or on various social media platforms using hashtag Cato SCOTUS, C-A-T-O-S-C-O-T-U-S. And with that, I'll turn it over to Professor Blackman. Thank you, Ilya. My three best articles were co-authored with you, so I have to always give credit there. In 2019, Jacobson versus Massachusetts was an obscure precedent. Yet in 2020, Jacobson became the fountainhead for pandemic jurisprudence. 
Courts relied on Jacobson to resolve disputes over religious freedom, abortion, gun rights, voting rights, and the right to, and many other contexts. And in 2021, governments began to impose vaccine mandates. Now, as the COVID-19 pandemic enters its next phase, this 1905 precedent retains a central place in our constitutional discourse. But what exactly did Jacobson say? Justice John Marshall Harlan's decision upheld the state's power to impose a nominal $5 fine on a person who refused to be vaccinated. No more, no less. Yet judges now follow a variant of Jacobson that is far removed from the Lochner era decision. And the Supreme Court is largely to blame for these departures from precedent. Over the course of a century, four prominent Supreme Court justices established what I call the irrepressible myth of Jacobson versus Massachusetts. And this myth has four levels. The first level was layered in 1927. In Buck v. Bell, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes upheld Virginia's eugenics law, which mandated involuntary, involuntary sterilization for so-called imbeciles. And Justice Holmes used Jacobson as the leading authority. Or more precisely, Holmes recast Jacobson's limited holding. Holmes wrote, quote, the principle that sustains compulsory vaccination from Jacobson is, quote, broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. In a single sentence, Holmes expanded the scope of Jacobson beyond its narrow confines to support forcible intrusions onto bodily autonomy. The second level was layered in 1963. In Sherbert v. Verner, Justice William Brennan found that neutral laws that burden religion would be reviewed with something like strict scrutiny. But Brennan recognized that the court had upheld, quote, governmental regulations of certain overt acts prompted by religious beliefs or principles that pose some substantial threat to public safety, peace, or order. Justice Brennan cited Jacobson as an example of this dynamic. But this was a myth. Jacobson had nothing to do with religious beliefs. True, Jacobson himself was a, was a minister, but he didn't even raise a free exercise claim. But with a single citation, Justice Brennan transformed a substantive due process case into a free exercise case, even though Jacobson predated modern First Amendment doctrine by decades. In 1905, the First Amendment had not even been incorporated or extended to the states. But even more importantly, Justice Brennan suggested that during a public health crisis, the usual free exercise clause jurisprudence does not apply. Rather, in a pandemic, Jacobson governs religious liberty cases. The third level was layered in 1973. Try and guess what case. Roe v. Wade. In Roe v. Wade, Justice Harry Blackman recognized a substantive due process right to terminate a pregnancy. But the court refused to recognize a, quote, unlimited right to do with one's body as one pleases. What authority did Justice Blackman cite to support this limitation? He cited two cases, Jacobson and Buck v. 
versus Bell. With these citations, the Supreme Court affirmed Justice Holmes's misreading of Jacobson. And Justice Blackmun incorporated Jacobson into the court's modern substantive due process framework, even though Jacobson predated modern common law by decades. Roe also extended Jacobson yet further. During a health crisis, the state has additional powers to restrict abortions. The fourth layer is of recent vintage. In South Bay, Pentecostal Church versus Newsom, the Supreme Court refused to enjoin California's COVID-19 restrictions on houses of worship. This shadow docket case lacked a majority opinion. <clears throat> but Chief Justice Roberts wrote a very influential concurring opinion. He favorably cited Jacobson, wrote that, quote, our constitution principally entrusts the safety and health of the people to the politically accountable officials of the state to guard and protect. In other words, not for the courts to second guess the legislature or the executive in this case. In short order, this concurrence became a super precedent. Over the following six months, 140 cases cited the Roberts concurrence and more than 90 of which also cited Jacobson. Jacobson came back with a fury after 100 years of solitude. It isn't clear that the Chief Justice intended to adopt Jacobson's constitutional analysis as a general rule to review pandemic measures. Yet Roberts established what became the fourth layer of Jacobson's myth. Jacobson level deference was warranted for all pandemic related constitutional challenges. The lower courts followed the chief signal. Thankfully, this final layer of the myth will be buried six months later in Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn versus Cuomo. The per curiam decision followed traditional First Amendment doctrine and did not rely on Jacobson. But still, Jacobson stands ready to open up as an escape, escape hatch in the Supreme Court's usual jurisprudence. So where do we go from here? Jacobson was pruned, but not overruled. This precedent still stands, in the words of Robert Jackson, like a loaded weapon ready for the hand of any authority that can bring forward a plausible claim of an urgent need. COVID-19 pulled the trigger. At any moment, Jacobson can open up another escape hatch from the Constitution during a future crisis. The Supreme Court should restore Jacobson's to its original meaning and permanently seal that escape hatch. Future disputes should be based on settled law and not an irrepressible myth. Thank you all for your attention. Thanks very much for that provocative presentation, Josh. I'm sure we'll have lots yeah. to discuss. Uh, now turn it over to Eugene. Uh, thank you all. Uh, so the recent COVID pandemic saw uh, an extraordinary range of government restrictions uh, of individual liberty in the name of uh, stopping and reducing the spread of the contagion, um, as is understandable given uh, given the given the extent of the, of the problem. Uh, the government restrictions took many forms and invaded almost every aspect of life. Uh, as a result, there was a wave of litigation challenging various particular aspects of uh, COVID response uh, as being unconstitutional uh, or, or otherwise overreaching. Uh, and there was litigation across the country in scores of areas. And 
in the first few months of the uh, COVID pandemic, pretty much any lawsuit for any reason challenging any government restriction was uh, turned away and rejected by the courts. However, uh, after things calmed down, after first few, the first few months, courts actually started looking at the merits of, this cha of these challenges and not taking, uh, you know, while giving great deference to uh, public health regulations, not, uh, not taking them as uh, beyond constitutional challenge. And if, uh, eventually, uh, plaintiffs began prevailing in uh, against COVID restrictions, uh, against shutdown orders and stay-at-home uh, stay-at-home orders in certain contexts, uh, and in jurisdictions across the country, uh, district courts, court of appeals began setting aside uh, shutdown or uh, stay-at-home orders or similar restrictions as infringing on the Constitution. But the, these lawsuits all involved a grab bag of individual rights in the Constitution. So there, these cases involved uh, shutdown COVID restrictions, shutdown restrictions as imposed on gun shops, violating the Second Amendment, uh, which some courts of appeals uh, uh, found violates the Second Amendment. Uh, so challenges about abortion, restri uh, COVID shutdown orders as applied to abortion clinics, which some courts of appeals found uh, violates uh, the substantive uh, due process right to an abortion, and of course, the religion issue, which made its way to the Supreme Court uh, several times, and the Supreme Court ruled that uh, several states or uh, localities um, shut down or social distancing orders were irrational uh, and unreasonable, and as applied to, um, as applied to uh, religious service, uh, singled them out and treated them in a irrational way that couldn't be that couldn't be uh, couldn't be justified and struck those down so courts we see do not give an automatic and uh blanket deference to uh pandemic measures um despite the influence the lamentable influence of jacobson which i agree with, uh, with with josh about but what we see is that challenges to government authority uh asserted under public uh, pub, uh public health laws has been in the area of particular constitutional rights. As a result, and in these cases, the courts have held that some of these restrictions were arbitrary, unreasonable, treated uh, treated thing uh, like things, um, not like not like other things, um, and generally not seemed in some cases not based on any clear evidence whatsoever. But the greatest impact, of course, on COVID shutdown regulations was not on people who want to pray together, people who want to have abortions, people who want to buy a gun during the pandemic. Uh, the most sweeping, the, mo uh, the most sweeping uh, effect was on people's ability to work, which was exactly what was targeted primarily by uh, these orders. But in, and in many cases, people's ability to pursue their occupation at all. So as we know, the COVID shutdown orders began by uh, generally uh, barring uh, going to work, except at various chosen professions, chosen jobs, chosen industries, uh, based on their being essential. A quick look at the list of essential industries, such as uh, lawyers, real estate agents, uh, TV, uh, TV, persona TV personalities, Hollywood, clearly shows that the judgment was not about what was essential in the sense of keeping body and soul together, but essential in the sense of deemed sufficiently worthy by the government. 
This is perhaps the greatest assertion of governmental authority in modern times, the ability to decide who gets to work and who doesn't get to work. Uh, at the, but there was no, but the constitutional challenges against these measures were brought, but they completely failed because of the Lochner Doctrine. Just a few months after uh, Jacobson was decided and citing Jacobson uh, for the uh, uh, proposi prop uh, proposition uh, that there's an individual liberty and unenumerated liberties, the Supreme Court held that there's a freedom to contract um, in the due process clause uh, and that certain economic regulations could violate individual liberty. That case was subsequently overruled and not just overruled, but given a bad name so that the very notion of an economic kind of liberty has gotten a bad name. And that is why it's been very hard to challenge the economic aspects of COVID uh, regulations. Uh, the broad sweep of these regulations, I think, require us to re-examine Lochner. And I would argue that it is not obvious that Lochner would actually preclude substantive due process uh, challenges claiming a liberty interest in work to um, COVID regulations, and that if it does preclude it, it should be revisited. So the question is, why was Lochner overruled? And one of the common answers was because Lochner involved the courts, uh, involved economic policy by the legislation, by the legislature, who to benefit, who not to benefit. Um, and it was, the courts, as a result, were second-guessing the legislature's economic policies. And economic, economic policy, there's no right or wrong, right? Socialism, capitalism, whatever you want, constitutionally speaking, is open. But uh, so we don't want the courts second guessing economic policy um, because it's a pure policy question. It's a matter of preference. Um, but the COVID restrictions affected economics, but they were not economic policy. Right? They were public health measures. Um, they were not justified by, you know, we have one view, we're socialists, you're capitalists. They were justified as public health measures. And thus, it's not a matter of the legislature being able to pursue whatever economic theory uh, it sees um, it sees fit. Furthermore, uh, the um, stepping back, uh, the stepping back from uh, economic rights has not meant an abandonment of substantive due process. Indeed, substantive due process has been embraced with a different political valence for sexual autonomy rights, abortion, uh, and so forth. One reason uh, that uh, seems to have happened is there's a general sense that there's a greater threat to liberty from things that target things that are central to people's autonomy, to people's individuality. That was based on an assumption that uh, arose after the New Deal, that economic regulation, however it may restrict people, is not going to be broad and categorical, right? It's not going to be the Soviet Union. There will be dental regulations of people's ability to work, how many hours, um, what, what wage, but the government is not going to have a blanket power over people's very livelihood. Right? Not just the uh, conditions of their contracting, but their freedom to have a job in the first place, the right to pursue a livelihood. The uh, COVID restrictions have shown that the government can disqualify tens of millions of people from pursuing their professions at all. Lochner should not be understood as barring liberty-based challenges to such restrictions. Thank you very much. Uh, Professor Mariner, go ahead. Thank you, Ilya, and uh, <clears throat> thanks to Josh and Eugene for their thoughtful presentations. Um, I, I do want to begin with a cautionary note. Um, we're here to have a thoughtful discussion of principles, but is anyone listening? 
there's a tsunami of politics that ignores principle or twists principle to serve partisan goals. All the controversy over mask vaccines and business closures has very little to do with COVID. Most people have welcomed vaccinations and masks to protect us from pretty dreadful contagious diseases with open arms, literally. Um, and a lot of these lawsuits challenging COVID restrictions seem to me to be opportunistic, using COVID as a springboard to argue against regulatory authority in general. Um, and such actions strike me as manipulative, self-serving, and frankly shameful. So it's not about vaccines or masks or business closures. It's about something else. So I worry that our comments may be plucked out of context and misrepresented to serve someone's political or financial agenda. But undeterred, <laughs> I'll offer a few comments in three categories. Uh, one is the state's power to regulate to protect public health and safety. Second is whose liberty is being restricted by COVID preventive measures. And third is whether we need any new doctrine to protect liberty or public health. I'll start with Jacobson. Um, Jacobson was indeed a case of first impression about whether the state could require residents to be vaccinated. Um, and I agree with Josh that it did not purport to establish a clear standard of review for all emergencies. It followed earlier cases, finding the state has the police power and that power is exercised by the legislature. Does anyone disagree with that? Yet it is a foundational case in public health because it made two things clear. The 14th Amendment did protect liberty as against states, and sometimes protecting public health entails limiting some personal liberty. That's the price we pay for living in a civilized country governed by law. Um, do you think that the state has an obligation to protect public health, if not a constitutionally required duty, then an inherent uh, responsibility of government to protect people from the harms they can't prevent themselves. Individual liberty, as much as I prize it, can't stop an epidemic and it can't keep the air and water clean. And that's why it's called public health. So I ask, um, is something wrong with the Jacobson decision? I've not heard any disagreement with the result in that case. I think it was an easy case. Um, but if Jacobson is wrong, what should the rule be? Should the state not have police power? Should the rule be that individual liberty should always outweigh public health? And how is that different from anarchy? Secondly, um, exactly what and whose liberty is being unjustifiably limited by COVID restrictions? Governor Abbott in Texas and DeSantis in Florida are banning cruise lines, employers, and school districts from requiring vaccinations or masking, all in the name of abstract individual liberty, with predictably bad consequences for real people. Uh, what about the liberty of children to attend schools that don't expose them to contagious diseases? The point of vaccines and masks is to give people the freedom to go to school, restaurants, stores, and work. The point of business restrictions is to bring that kind of freedom sooner rather than later and to allow people to live long enough to enjoy it. Um, and most businesses do want to protect their employees and customers. Now, Eugene's proposal <clears throat> is based in the 14th Amendment's protection of liberty, and, and that has great emotional appeal. I happen to be a big fan. <laughs> um, and his, his links to 
freedom of contract. Now, many arguments for freedom of contract strike me as implicitly grounded in protecting property, not liberty. A freedom of contract is mostly illusory for people without property, and this country has a long, ugly history of restricting the liberty of African Americans, Native Americans, and women, too, by restricting their rights to property. I don't hear workers clamoring for the freedom to work for less money in unsafe conditions. They live in a take it or leave it world. More freedom of contract does not necessarily mean more freedom or more liberty. I would argue that the residents of Vermont, 70.5% of whom are fully vaccinated, are more free than the residents of West Virginia, 40.8% uh, of whom are fully vaccinated. There are times, frequent times, when government regulation can increase the total freedom of the population. And Lochner may be an example. <clears throat> Lochner, I believe, was certainly a public health case. The regulation um, by the state sought to protect bakers for, from long hours in unhealthy, indeed, sometimes unbearable conditions, not like today's bakeries, as a result of regulation. If we're to talk about freedom and liberty, we should not avoid reality. And the reality is that the traditional view of freedom of contract tends toward restricting the liberty of many, many Americans. Um, now, the restrictions on businesses became necessary because COVID can be transmitted when a person is asymptomatic. That made coronavirus very different from prior epidemics, including the so-called Spanish influenza, which was not from Spain. Um, because the viruses in prior epidemics uh, were not transmissible until people showed symptoms of infection. If you know who's infected, you can target your measures to those locations and people. But in COVID, we didn't know who was infected because we didn't have proper tests in the beginning to identify people with asymptomatic infections. And frankly, the federal government bungled the response um, by not admitting there was a big problem. So we were all left with the possibility that everyone could be potentially infected and we couldn't target preventive measures as we could in other epidemics. So large closures and restrictions became necessary, but no industries were shut down. Individual com companies went out of business, a few which I think is a shame, but we did not lose the restaurant industry or the meatpacking industry or the oil industry or any other industry. Um, and finally, a few words about the relevant doctrinal approach to deciding whether laws are justified. I take it that Eugene's proposal is not to bring back Lochner entirely, good, um, but it's not clear to me how his approach would change the results in more than a handful of cases, some of which were just wrong under current law. I certainly agree that court should require government to base its decisions on available facts, and that doesn't mean blanket deference. And in fact, the courts have not been deferential to public health regulations for more than half a century they've subjected them to the same scrutiny applicable to whatever right was involved. Um, of course, courts make mistakes. Buck v. Bell, huge mistake. Uh, look at the abortion cases. In the Fifth Circuit in Abbott and the Eighth Circuit in Rutledge, accepted the state's unfounded argument that banning abortion procedures would save PPE for hospitals. Factually incorrect. If the concern is to recognize that some government restrictions on business are unnecessary, and they can be, that concern can be accommodated within the existing constitutional framework for analyzing restrictions on liberty, requiring a legitimate purpose and a reasonable means of accomplishing that goal 
and for intrusions on more important rights, heightened levels of scrutiny. So I look forward to discussing this in more detail. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that. So I think we've set the table nicely. I'll ask Josh, first of all, to respond to the point about Jacobson and its relevance, because of course, Jacobson involved a $5 fine for not getting vaccinated. That's about 150 bucks in today's dollar. So are you saying, Josh, that Jacobson is irrelevant unless what we're discussing is a fine for not getting vaccinated and, and a rather small one at that? I think one of the difficulties, Ilya, is people who are looking at precedent are looking in a way that's not actually looked at, right? When we're looking at decision from the 1900s, it speaks in a very different language. It doesn't use the language of modern constitutional law. It's very likely that Jacobson comes out the same way under 20th century doctrine, but it's a mistake to just pluck language from a John Marshall Harlan opinions if that's how courts decide cases today. Uh, just to give an example, we often speak of scrutiny, right? There's a rational basis scrutiny, there's a strict scrutiny. Those terms simply didn't exist in the early 20th century. They, they simply didn't. Um, you know, today we would ask is something narrowly tailored. So you might say a person who has perhaps natural immunity or perhaps someone who got one, one shot plus natural immunity may actually be better off than someone with two shots. Uh, there, there might be reasons why people should not be tested, right? There are various things of tailoring that we'd ask that simply were not known. Uh, smallpox is different than COVID in a number of regards. The, 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 co the, the COVID vaccine operates differently than the smallpox vaccine did, right? I think it's a mistake to just transplant a case from 1905, say, this is the gospel, right? This is what we have to use and ignoring everything that's come afterwards. Gene, uh, and I'll go to audience questions uh, after this. We already have some in the queue and I'll remind everyone you can either input it if you're on the Cato site directly or use hashtag Cato SCOTUS if you're on one of the social media platforms. Uh, Eugene, would you like to respond to uh, Wendy uh, saying that you're, you've got kind of a, a, a more broad critique about re regulation uh, writ large. And I'll add, um, is the debate or the disagreement uh, that's evident between you and Wendy, at least in your view, one over principle or empirics? That is, uh, are you really arguing that COVID isn't serious enough to warrant lockdowns? But in theory, that power uh, does exist. It's just... Uh, you know, is, is not is not warranted by the scientific data that we that we have regarding this disease, how it spreads, its its uh, lethality, etc. Um, I'm not going to make a scientific judgment about whether COVID lockdowns are warranted. I, I do think uh, it's constitutionally relevant um, to, to uh, in assessing the reasonableness of such measures uh, to know that uh, lockdowns, sort of general or broad lockdowns, have never been used uh, on this scale as a public health response, as opposed to quarantine, isolation. Uh, during the 1918 flu epidemic, which is the largest pandemic the nation has encountered, uh, certain municipalities at most shuttered places of mass congregation, theaters, um, you know, church, theaters, churches, saloons, places of public ent entertainment, uh, and required maybe staggered work uh, at certain uh, at assembly lines and large factories, uh, but the notion of a broad shutdown was not contemplated. And even in uh, pandemic planning manuals, the federal government came up with to deal with what turned out to be COVID to deal with the next pandemic. Uh, the notion of uh, shutdowns uh, was seen as beyond the pale because of the extraordinary economic cost. Um, but I do think in the end, it is, uh, it, uh, it, it is a measure of empirics. Uh, the 
the point of my paper is that when the government uses a pandemic, not just to shut down the economy, but also to decide crucially who gets to work, right? Wendy pointed out that, you know, people can transmit COVID at work, which they can. They can also transmit it at home, maybe more, maybe less. Uh, but um, the government did not ban work. Right? They banned work uh, in essential industries. Uh, and then they started giving out exceptions, as, of course, the government does when it has such great power, uh, to what you might call favored industries. Right? So Hollywood got a pass. Right? Uh, famously, uh, the caterer, the, the caterer for a Hollywood movie with hundreds of people eating was allowed to operate uh, food services, while a restaurant across the street was not, because the caterer was part of Hollywood, the restaurant was just part of the re uh, restaurant industry. Um, that's an extraordinary government power. And the, uh, the notion that the government could have such power is, uh, you know, I think scary if one cares about individual liberty, because, you know, reading a newspaper is important, praying is important. Having bodily autonomy is important, but without the ability to provide for oneself, uh, those things are actually less realizable. Okay. Um, Wendy, I don't know if you'd like to uh, respond to some of that, maybe on the empirical point that it's a sliding scale, I guess. Maybe lockdowns are, maybe you uh, agree implicitly with, with Eugene that lockdowns are now less uh, justified than they were at the outset when we didn't have full information or what have you. And I'll bring in a question from an, an audience uh, member. This is uh, from Anonymous, and we do at Cato uh, uh, respect uh, anonymous uh, free speech. Uh, but asking about, you know, this this, this argument of, uh, about Jacobson that we're having that that's related to everything we've been discussing is about the power of the states and based on the police power of the states. So what we've been discussing here isn't relevant to the, the federal vaccine mandate. Do you uh, agree or disagree with that? If I understand the question, you're you're asking if there's a difference between federal and state powers. That that's that's the latter half, but 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 yeah, kind of tying it into the the question of of, of what uh, Eugene was just uh, speaking that it's uh, you know empirically you know certain measures could be justified depending on uh, severity of the disease or or other indications and you know whether you uh, think that at different points during this pandemic, which we're on I think the 19th month now, uh, different things may have been justified or some things may have been justified initially that now are clearly no longer uh, anything that you'd like to say of that ilk? Well, I certainly, empirics matter. Um, you know, and I absolutely agree that the government should be put to its proof to demonstrate the need for particular measures. And indeed, because um, I also agree that there are times in emergencies when uh, government can overreach. And if you have an emergency situation in which the government imposes certain rights, or I'm sorry, limits certain rights, um, that can continue long in a, lo in a long held emergency and then become the norm. So <clears throat> I perfectly agree with that concern. Um, but we did have an unusual case here with COVID uh, for the, some of the reasons that I mentioned. We didn't know what was going on, although we probably could have had a better handle on it had we had the testing available in the beginning. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and so as the facts change, the justifiable restrictions can change. And that's why I, I do certainly agree with that. Pardon me. <clears throat> I've got something here. Um, 
what I'm what I am concerned about is that this is not so dramatic. I don't see this as unprecedented. The type of epidemic we're facing with COVID is unprecedented, but the measures that are being taken, I think, are not. Well, then that begs a follow-up question, I think, or at least raises it, uh, from Nick Nero, who asks, if COVID, a disease with a 99.7% survival rate, is considered serious enough to allow for extraordinary interventions in the market and personal liberty, what bright line would limit government action against cancer, obesity, or any other illness with much higher uh, mortality? Eugene? I think that's more, I th I'll give you a chance, Eugene, but I think that's uh, more directed to Wendy. Well, we have, first we have a difference in outcomes. We, we already have 45, almost 46 million cases of COVID in the country. We have 748,000 deaths. Yes, about 1.6% of those cases. Um, but it affects everybody. And so, and it, it, the transmissibility is person to person through the air. So this is really not a question of the government telling you how your health should be, but protecting you from external sources of contagion. That's why it's called public health. You wanted to follow up on that. Yeah, of course, uh, every significant restriction of individual liberty comes with a claim that uh, people are being protected from, from something. Uh, I want to point out, we were talking about Jacobson, and Josh suggested that a distinction between Jacobson and modern shutdown orders, vaccine mandates, and so forth, is uh, the strength of the penalty. Right? So today, if you're under the pending OSHA uh, vaccine mandate, you're going to lose your job uh, if you don't fall, uh, uh, if you don't get vaccinated. Uh, under Jacobson, it was a hundred uh, $5 fine, about $115, $120 today, I think. Um, but another difference is the virulence of the disease. So smallpox killed 3% of the people who got it, overwhelmingly children, uh, leaving a large percentage of the rest permanently maimed. Uh, the particular targeting of children made smallpox a much more horrifying disease. Uh, there were riots in front of houses of people thought to have smallpox, um, and it was something deeply unnerving. Uh, so I think, um, and the um, 1918 flu killed more pe a larger percentage of sick people than um, uh, than, than COVID. So COVID's, no one's doubting that COVID is serious, very serious things, killed many people, but um, the response, the government response is more severe than in previous pandemics, um, despite the uh, nature of the disease being less severe than say smallpox. Um, so it's true now that you can get it through the air. So, you know, everybody's a danger uh, and you need to be protected from everybody. But I think the cutoff question is a good one because there are many respiratory diseases that you can get from the cold to the flu, which can in fact be, uh, that can, can in fact be fatal. And if the government can um, begin imposing strict, federal government can begin imposing strict restrictions in the name of flu safety, uh, that does raise lots of questions about the scope of its power. So obviously it's a sliding scale, but where, where, do, you draw the, where do you draw the line? Ilya, you there? I think Ilya's frozen. Um, I'll, 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 be I'll be moderated for a second. I'll, I'll pose a question. Yeah, he's back. Maybe. He's back. Ah, he's back. I'm back. 
Okay, sorry. Uh, 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 Josh, I don't know if you want to respond to any of that, but there is a related question of if Jacobson were decided today, this is asked by Mike Garcia, uh, how would it be decided? What standard of scrutiny would apply? And would it would, would, would judges or justices uh, be weighing how serious COVID is, as Eugene just described, uh, you know, compared to smallpox, compared to the Spanish flu in terms of, uh, you know, are not the rate of contagion and the, uh, the, the rate of lethality and, and, and all of those sorts of things? Or what are judges supposed to do? Yeah, it's a good question. I think Jacobson would probably come out the same way today. And just to put in context, the $5 penalty was basically the equivalent of a parking ticket. I went through the entire Massachusetts health code from the 1900s, and that was the lowest penalty in the book, right? Swimming in a public water source was a $10 penalty, right? This was a very small fine. And even after Jacobson was convicted of this offense, he was still allowed to go about doing his business. He would speak in public events. He would give the benediction where the mayor was there, where the senators were there, where state reps were there. This is my favorite part. The, the World's Fair in St. Louis, he was sent on a delegation to go visit the World's Fair from Massachusetts, one of the leading uh, priest preachers. Right, so this guy was not really punished in a meaningful sense. That regime is very easy to, uh, to uphold. Um, other states, like I think it was North Carolina and Georgia, said, you stay in jail to get the smallpox vaccine. Right, That was actually the regime. We, we, you'd basically get a 30-day jail sentence, which would be renewed indefinitely until you get the shot. I think that's one that's very hard to uphold, but under some of the, you know, I don't use the phrase public health, that's a phrase Wendy likes to use, some public health experts would say, yeah, if the government wants to imprison you indefinitely, they perhaps could. Uh, if mask mandates are not sufficient, then you get vaccinated. And if there's maybe a higher, you know, there's the Epsilon variant that, that, that spreads more virulently, then maybe forced quarantine is actually essential. I mean, the, the lockdown measures were effectively incarceration in your own home, uh, unless you were one of the, uh, uh, privileged few who was allowed to leave their house. You look in other countries where you can leave your house for 30 minutes a day to walk your dog or some people bought dogs, they can leave the house, right? I, I think Jacobson by itself comes out the same way, but some of the more draconian regimes, I think would have to come out differently. Does anyone disagree with what Josh just said? All right. Oh, Wendy. Okay. Well, I don't disagree that it, it would <clears throat> turn out differently, although obviously there would be no no mandate for smallpox vaccine because we don't have smallpox. So again, facts matter. When they, the interesting question to me is um, the importance of the penalty. And that really doesn't affect the state's power, but it certainly affects the state's choices. And so what do you think is more restrictive of liberty, being isolated, quarantined, or vaccinated, or having your business shut down. And they're not shut down often, they're just closed for the moment. Let's touch on something that we haven't yet broached, and that is religious uh, objections and exemptions. So we have a question from Anonymous that says, my husband recently changed jobs because of a vaccine mandate and our sincerely held religious beliefs. No one was permitted an exemption. Uh, it wasn't clear whether this was put in by the business uh, or by the governor, I guess the business, because it goes on to say, our governor will not interfere and I'm hesitant to advocate for the government regulating business which I think is a, a worthy sentiment. But uh, uh, the questioner says, how do we reconcile this when people are losing their jobs? So obviously raises a couple of issues. You know, who is doing the mandate? Is it a private business, the state uh, or the federal government? But how do we treat 
uh, religious objections in this context who wants to um, take that. And Jacobson, by the way, Mr. Jacobson was a preacher, but but one of the myths I think that is in your paper uh, that you detail, uh, uh, Josh, is that, that this was not a religious liberty case. Yeah, no, Jacobson had nothing with religious liberty. Um, and a lot of courts were simply wrong to say that Jacobson's governor's free exercise cases. We, we say in con law that you have different standards for enumerated rights and unenumerated rights. Um, this is the footnote for settlement for those who are in the, in the, in the weeds. Um, we don't use rational basis standards to review free exercise claims. Perhaps the Smith case says though, um, but second amendment cases were even reviewed with a sort of uber rational deferential standard. Um, I think when we're talking about the religious exemptions, um, I think a lot of courts are being far too glib. You know, some people say, well, the Pope says it's okay. Well, you know, the Pope doesn't speak for all Catholics. And, you know, the, some people are more, ca more uh, Catholic than the Pope. Um, Eugene and I are both Jewish. Uh, the, 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 the Jewish teaching of this are probably different than the Catholic teachings, but people do have uh, differences of faith on these issues. And, and let me make this point a little more bluntly. People are complicated. Right, people may have beliefs that are influenced by religion, influenced by philosophy, influenced by economics. It's very hard to sort of distill why you're doing something down to a single decision, especially when you have this vaccine that just came out. So I, 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 I favor vaccines. I am vaccinated. I encourage everyone listening to me to get vaccinated, but I am very hesitant to um, dump on people who raise religious beliefs um, in the face of these state and perhaps federal mandates and, and to just have them laughed out of court. I think, I think it's problematic and Jacobson should not be stretched that far. All right, let's, Eugene, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say, uh, to the, to the question, uh, first of all, um, I salute you on, uh, upholding your conscience and, uh, not listening to the, uh, many priests of every religion who now, uh, explain However, religion does not have an objection to COVID vaccines, which uh, the media likes to circulate. Uh, but at the same time, if it's a mandate imposed by a private employer, uh, there should be no constitutional restriction because it's that private employer's choice. I would say the fact, and uh, Wendy has pointed this out, most people want to get vaccinated. Most employers are going to impose some kind of vaccination rules voluntarily. All of that undercuts the argument for uh, government regulation. That is to say, government regulation is only is imposing significant inflexibilities, but is only helping on this or only adding this additional margin beyond what people would do uh, themselves. Uh, and of course, there's diminishing, you know, marginal returns, diminishing value. It's not clear what that extra little bit, how important it is to uh, coerce people uh, to get that last person vaccinated who wouldn't voluntarily choose to do so. That's an interesting point. And, and Wendy, I know you wanted to respond on the previous discussion, but if you could fold in a response to the issue of, for example, in, in Puerto Rico, where you know the highest rate of vaccination of any U.S. jurisdiction, and they have the most extreme vaccine mandates as well, is it important to get those last few percentage points uh, or, or put in coercive measures to, to, to push through that? Does this, does this go to understandings of herd immunity or, or what is the, um, well, how, how should we think about that? Well, it's, ex it's exactly herd immunity. One wants to reach a threshold where the transmission will stop. Um, and, and that's the goal. So that we can get out of this, um, out of these measures sooner rather than later. One point that um, Eugene made, which was interesting, I thought, is that uh, I, I agree that under our current 
constitution. There's there's certainly no constitutional objection to an employer imposing these mandates. But if you are uh, concerned about the so-called right to work and and have an occupation, why is it easy, why is it okay for employers to impose these requirements, but not okay for government to do it? I mean, if I have a right to work, why shouldn't you know? Why should the employer be my control? Just because government doesn't make rules doesn't mean we don't live under rules, and many of those rules are quite private. Well, I I think that I'll use my moderator's prerogative to just say that's because the an employer isn't forcing you to do anything. If you don't like that employer's rules, you can uh, you can leave and and go work for someone else. But if the government is imposing it on you, then there's no um, there's no alternative. Um, but let's uh, well, let let's move on to it. Sure. What I meant work. when I say right to anything in our discussion, I mean right in the American sense, which is not an affirmative right to have something, but a right to be free from government interference in pursuing it. Yes, that's that's the the more erudite philosophical uh, uh, explication. Okay, let's let's move to a, a different sort of question from Ronald Hansen, who asks, should a Wendy? Okay, okay. One more beat on this. Let's go. Uh, you're correct, but if we are if we are talking about the way things should be as opposed to the way things are, um, it's it's not entirely clear to me why uh, we are arguing for a right to work and having someone deprived the right to pursue an occupation if the employer can tell me I don't have that right um, if if I because they won't offer it to me under acceptable terms. So I'm well, just pointing I mean, out. And then that, there's a question there are, of whether the employer is. A is the employer a monopolist? Because unlike, you know, then the antitrust rules or common carrier rules, I guess, uh, come in. But all right, let, let's move on. I, th I think we've we've exhausted that uh, micro point. But Ronald Hansen asked an interesting question. Should a different standard of constitutional review apply to public health measures like lockdowns and masks, etc., that are expressly authorized by the legislature, as opposed to those yeah. imposed by executive order of a state governor or uh, health uh, yeah. uh, civil servants? Who wants to take that? Yeah, I'll start with this question. I think it's very important. We have separation of powers in the federal government between the executive branch and the legislature. I think we also have separation of powers in the state governments between the governors and the state legislatures. Every governor in the union in the past 20 odd months has relied on fairly nebulous public health statutes enacted long ago. Um, none of these statutes were enacted with the idea that we would have a two-year-long national emergency that would give governors unlimited power, right? Governor Cuomo flexed those powers very broadly. Thankfully, he's out of office. Um, in Texas, Governor Abbott's flexing those powers in very different ways. Governor DeSantis, Randy mentioned a couple minutes ago, flexing different ways. I think legislators should reclaim their prerogative, right? We're no longer in the early days of COVID where, where you know, we don't know what tells going on. We, we, have, we have a pretty good sense of what's going on. Legislature should, I think, impose sunset limits. If the governor wants to act, he has a period of X days, and then the legislature has to approve it. It's like the war powers resolution. I think it's dangerous to give any one person absolute authority because that power will be abused. Power, absolute power is always going to be abused. That's what it, that's what happens. And uh, the courts are basically feckless. They're not going to stop it. So I think really legislatures are in the right position to intercede here. Wendy, go ahead. You seem like you want to say something on this. <laughs> uh, I think this is I think this is a very difficult question, the separation of powers issues, and it's one that's being pursued in the states as we speak. Um, and while I agree that there should be a check on 
um, sort of unil unilateral authorized by statute government, um, I'm sorry, governor's executive orders in some circumstances, and there should be a check. Uh, there are perhaps some ways that it could be checked quickly beforehand. I'm talking about consultation with scientific uh, groups and the like. I do think the legislature has a definite role to play in long term. Uh, yes, I know. I'm surprised you. I agree with you, John. Um, <laughs> what worries me are the legislators. Uh, just like many governors worry me, many legislators worry me because I have seen what they have chosen to do in the name of public health and in pretext. And certainly with respect to reproductive health and other areas, um, I, I would, I think there's great theory, but in practice, some legislatures may make things worse. Okay, um, we have a question from, okay, re re real quick on that, Eugene, I wanna get one more issue in before we uh, hit the top of the hour. issues in the states worries you then you should be even more alarmed by the separate federal separation of powers issue because the vaccine mandate that's coming out from OSHA is not being enacted even under a public health law, but uh, a rule that's gonna apply to most American employees uh, and really deals with their health in and out of the workplace is going to be done through um, an, a workplace safety rule uh, treating uh, COVID as a workplace health hazard. Now, it's true, you can get COVID at work, but you can get it anywhere else. And it's about, you know, to, to think that this is what Congress meant when they allowed the president to regulate uh, workplace hazards. It's kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, disease, uh, respiratory diseases that you happen to also be able to get at work just as easily as anywhere else. It's kind of like uh, saying that the common cold is a sexually transmitted disease. It's true, but it's not how we normally use the language. Okay, let's move to the topic of, all right, Wendy, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I, just want, I just want to be clear. I don't disagree with the concept of separation of powers. I'm not, I'm not talking about the theory. I am, what I am concerned about is putting in place the kinds of um, constraints that try to make sure that the decisions that are made either at the, at the governor's level or at the legislative level are actually factually based and sensible. Uh, I'm, I'm just arguing that we have mistakes at both governor level and at the legislative level. Okay, um, I think we have time for one more question. We'll see, uh, unless the, this is a lightning round, but it's an interesting one. It involves several people have asked about natural immunity, including Anonymous, Anonymous, and Ken Langford. Uh, it appears <laughs> that a large number of people... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, in, in, indeed. Uh, uh, your your uh, uh, co faculty colleague Todd Zawicki, my Cato colleague, um, uh, sued uh, George Mason University for its uh, it's a state school for its mandate because he uh, recovered from COVID and has elevated antibody levels. His doctor recommended against vaccination, and he eventually settled and got an exemption. Uh, but uh, you know, millions of people now, tens of millions, I guess, maybe even over 100 million, I don't, I don't know how many people have actually had it because it's largely asymptomatic uh, in this country. Um, and so most mandates that we've seen, or at least most whenever the issue of vaccination uh, status uh, is considered, natural immunity doesn't seem to fit in. Uh, so how should it be considered? How should either policymakers or more importantly, in the context of this discussion, courts, 
uh, treat regulations or mandates that don't uh, accept natural immunity as a reason for not getting uh, vaccinated or for treating, you know, immunity status rather than vaccination status. Uh, I'll, I'll take a stab. Um, I mean, I've talked to Todd and I've reviewed his case. I don't know nearly enough about the science to know how long lasting the natural immunity is. Uh, and I don't think anyone knows. In fact, we don't really know how long vaccines last for. We don't have, you know, a 10 year trial to see how long the immunity lasts. It's only a you know, year old vaccine. And there's some evidence that even if you take Pfizer, the, the immunity levels drop over time. I mean, that's why some countries are authorizing the booster shots. Um, I'll bring this back to the area of constitutional law. When we talk about narrow tailoring, we have to consider, um, is this actually necessary in all cases? Maybe Todd is like the Henry de Lacks of, you know, of COVID. And he has these amazing antibodies that, that just endure forever and he will never need it. And maybe Todd faces a risk of uh, uh, some sort of serious side effects by taking the shots. Maybe it's not warranted for him. I, I don't know. If we're in rational basis world, none of this stuff matters because the government does whatever the heck it wants. But if we're talking about actual constitutional rights, then yeah, there has to be some sort of tailoring involved and the policies can't be blunderbuss. Yeah, all good. Wendy, go ahead. <laughs> I, I certainly agree that the science on so-called natural immunity is evolving. And in the beginning, it was it looked chancy at, at best. Maybe it will prove to be better. But here, I think, is we can go back to Jacobson. And the decision in Jacobson was to uphold a vaccine mandate for everyone. But the court made clear that individuals who showed that they perhaps were not, um, they should be exempt from the rule, could be exempted as an individual. Um, and Jacobson did not provide proof other than his concern from pa some past event. Uh, but if someone like Langford were to be able to establish with his physicians or more likely with the good epidemiological evidence that we don't have yet, but may, that natural immunity was sufficient, then there would be a warranted exemption, I would think, but it's individual. All right, and with that, I think we've come to the end of our time with this program. So please either virtually or uh, physically uh, applaud our, our panelists. Uh, a recording will be available uh, on the event website if you want to rewatch or join us late. And I encourage you to read the two papers that uh, professors Blackman and Kontorovich have presented. They're, they're very interesting and they're very readable. They're not full of legal jargon that uh, you need a, a law degree to, uh, to understand. Uh, with that, uh, thank you to professors uh, and uh, we are adjourned. Thank you. <laughs>